BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. And here we are. Here we are. Recording during the daytime. I know. We only do this every so often. I feel like we've done this like twice total. Yeah. This would be at number three? Probably. Something like that. Which is crazy for us. Which also, I feel like it, it affects... Not just our ability to to stay focused for the worse. Actually, I don't know if that's for the worse, but <laughs> I feel like I'm more likely to be distracted by just random shadows and things like that versus at the nighttime when everything's just quiet and still. Well, the good news for myself is that I'm always like a little bit distracted. That's so true. it's like it doesn't feel that different <laughs> for me. It's just weird yeah. that it's quiet. Yeah. And light out. And we're doing this with, when there's like natural light coming in. <laughs> I know. We didn't even turn the lamp on. We're like recording at oh, midnight yeah, most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, Correction. The lamp is on, but I didn't turn it on for this. It just happened to already be on. Well, that's so, all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, my love, what uh, what you drinking over there today on this afternoon? I'm drinking a, a t- you know, appropriately timed latte. You are yes appropriately timed because it's not only is it early afternoon, but it's also appropriately timed seasonally. Mm-hmm. Is what kind is it? It's a chestnut praline latte. Oh, that's my favorite from Starbucks. It's super tasty. They do a good job with that. Yeah, it's not a toasted white mocha. I'm still well, bitter that that was not part of the holiday drink lineup this year, but I'll accept a chestnut praline. Like it's fine. <laughs> what do you have it. though? I get it. So, uh, yeah, I was able to this morning go to one of my favorite coffee shops in town mm-hmm. as well. I went to Hardy Coffee Company and got Ooh. myself a, 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 a benchmark roast. And it's just black coffee because nice. that's how I like it. 
The loitious. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, what do you have uh, for us for a feel-good fact on this episode? Okay, so the song Jingle Bells holds the Guinness Book of World Records title for the first ever song played in outer space. The NASA crew what? of Gemini 6A played the song in 1965 while in orbit. They like <laughs> blasted it out. Just jingle bells, huh? Just jingle bells. Wow. Just out into the nothingness yeah. of outer space. Into the void. Jingle into bells the void. into the void. Yeah. <laughs> no gravity, so no sound. Also, jingle bells was initially intended to be a Thanksgiving song. Really? Mm-hmm. It had a different <laughs> title, but it ended up becoming a Christmas song. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. Little little additional fact. Just a little additional two feel good facts. It, that one doesn't feel as feel good though. It's just like that's true. It's a fact. It is a fact. This <laughs> <laughs> is something that is true. <laughs> well, I hope that the stars out there really enjoyed listening to Jingle Bells in the '60s. They were probably all terrified. Like, what is that sound? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> well, before we get going today, we uh, have a little bit of of housekeeping here because. In case you didn't notice, we are nearing the century mark on this podcast. So today's episode 97. We've got a few episodes to give this heads up that for episode 100, we wanted to do something really special to celebrate 100 public episodes of This One's a Doozy. So if you are somebody with a listener story or maybe um, some some of your own commentary that you want to sound off on, um, on a previous episode, we'd love to hear it. So you can send us an audio recording, just a voice memo on your phone is fine. You can email that to us or you can type up, write up um, something that you'd like us to read for you. And you can email that at this one is a doozy at gmail.com. When we get those, we will uh, make sure that they're the appropriate length and we'll try to fit as many in as we can on episode 100 while we're also squeezing in a couple of short stories, I think was the plan. So personal stories that you might have, if you've seen a ghost, if you've seen Bigfoot, once again, mm-hmm. I must know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a particularly favorite episode or a favorite moment in an episode, um, or you have, you know, just a fun little anecdote about, I listen to this with my mom every week and we always talk about Lottie Da, whatever. We would love to hear it and yes. we would love to share it on the show. Yes. So send it in. And uh, that'll be a really special, unique episode for us. Mm-hmm. So, my love, what do you have for us this week by way of uh, an actual story we've got yes. going on? Okay, so Christmas time in the rural town of Chehalis, Washington, has long been a most magical time. The town's street lamps are decorated with tinsel. Christmas-themed decor is sprinkled on every post and on every corner of the town. There are holiday parades and acres upon acres of beautiful, towering Christmas trees available for families around the county to come and choose from. In late December 1985, two beloved locals from the town over, the Christmas tree farmers Ed and Minnie Morin, were set to host a local church ladies' luncheon at their home. But when guests arrived and knocked on the door to the Morin home, Nobody answered. After hours of searching, the Morins were still nowhere to be found. In the decades that followed, the truth of what happened to the Morins would be revealed, leaving the small town forever changed by the tragedy. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. All right. Let's go. So let's start this off by talking a little bit more about the towns of Chehalis and Ethel, Washington. Okay. So both towns are located in Lewis County in southwest Washington state. 
Chehalis is a very small, tight-knit town with a population of just under 7,700 as of the 2021 census. The town of Chehalis itself is a super charming place. The downtown area features super well-maintained historic buildings that date all the way back to the 19th century and have kind of been revitalized and turned into cute boutiques and eateries. Mm -hmm. In 1985, when today's story took place, the nearby town of Ethel, Washington, was also a super tight-knit community. This town is even smaller than Chehalis, with a current population of 669 residents. So it's a very small community. (laughs) And it has long been a place where people have felt like they and their families are truly safe. Hmm. The kids would run around town and explore or ride their bikes everywhere. Nobody really felt the need to lock their doors, and everybody pretty much knew everybody. Yeah. This area is primarily full of farmers and loggers, and so these were real, like, salt-of-the-earth types that made up these two small towns. Hmm. They were pretty well, like, interconnected. Yeah. So Edward and Wilhelmina, or Ed and Minnie Morin, were two beloved figures in their community. From what I gather, the two lived just outside of the farming community of Ethel, which is about 15 minutes away from Chehalis, but they were regularly involved in the goings-on all around Lewis County. Hmm. So Ed, age 81, and Minnie, age 83, were married in their late 50s and had each endured their own hardships. Minnie had lost her first husband, a farmer named Louie, who she shared four children with when she was in her mid-50s. Up until meeting Minnie, much of Ed's time was spent working as a tree farmer and taking care of his ailing mother, who passed away in her 90s. Oh, wow. So, like, these are, like, hardworking people. Yeah. Like, they've they've both been through things, you know. But the couple, they'd been married for about 24 years at the time of the story, was known for their warmth and their hospitality. They adored hosting events in their home. And they were also known for driving around at a snail's pace in their little green 1969 Chrysler, which is cute. (laughs) They just kind of putz around in their little green car. And for their 120-acre Christmas tree farm that they owned and operated. Wow, a Christmas tree farm. Isn't that fun? That is fun. I would love, I, maybe I wouldn't love it. Would you love to be a Christmas tree farmer? Well, no, I feel like that wouldn't be so bad. Like just growing trees. Yeah. It's not like. Checking on the trees. Not that I'm like making light of it. I'm sure it's hard work, but that feels, that feels like you got the holly jollies all year long. Well, and it's a very focused job. Yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, I guess I don't know because I've never been a Christmas right. tree farmer, <laughs> but I feel like. There's that kind of sense of anticipation, like your stepdad works at the big, huge pumpkin patch Mm -hmm. and he works there all year. Right. But then it's all kind of gearing up towards the big time of year, October. The six to eight weeks of September, October, fall Mm -hmm. festival kinds of things. It has that feeling to it to me just as an outsider observing. Right. So the Morins had a large family with 14 grandchildren and 14 great-grandchildren who all lived nearby and loved to visit as much as they could. Oh, that's cute. So like a big extended family that loved to go see Grandma and Grandpa Morin. (laughs) They were both heavily involved in their church, and that brings us to the morning of Thursday, December 19th, 1985. The couple hosted a Christmas luncheon either for the ladies in their local church or for couples in their local church. I've seen it as both ways, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it doesn't really matter that much one way or the other. They were hosting people. Yeah. So their guests began arriving at their home around noon on that day. But when the ladies started arriving and knocking on the door, nobody answered. Oh, boy. This was extremely odd. The Morins were always ready for their guests. They were super dependable, and it was not like them to, like, forget mm-hmm. that they had scheduled something like this. So 
like immediately people were like, "Mm, this does not feel right. Mm. After continued knocking with no answers, the visitors decided to call family members of the Morins to come and check and make sure that they were both doing okay. Yeah. When the family arrived and they also couldn't get into the home, everyone made their way around the back of the house and one of the Morins family members was able to get in through a window. They let everyone in and began taking a look around the home to see if anything was amiss. First, Ed and Minnie were nowhere to be found. They were not inside of the house. It was immediately noted as odd that their doors had been locked since the Morins had a little bit of an open door policy and loved to make themselves available for guests at any time. Hmm. And on this particular day, they were expecting guests since they were hosting the luncheon. Right, right. Next, their car was missing. The assumption was made that Ed and Minnie had simply run into town, maybe to the store, or maybe they dropped by the church for something. Mm -hmm. So at first, there wasn't any real panic that something was seriously wrong, but it was like something feels off. Yeah. But when 6 p.m. rolled around and the Morins still hadn't returned home, friends and family became more concerned. So they contacted the sheriff's office to report Ed and Minnie as missing. Mm -hmm. Officers arrived shortly after 6 p.m. and got to work on finding the Morins. Inside of the home, police looked around for anything that might be out of place, and they quickly discovered a handful of oddities. First, Minnie's purse was found behind the couch, Mm -hmm. kind of tucked behind the couch and like between the couch and the wall. Oh, weird. Yeah, that's that's strange. She also always brought her purse everywhere with her. And so it would be out of character for her to not bring the purse along. Yeah. It was also odd because the purse had been covered up, almost like wrapped up in a newspaper before it was tucked behind the wall. Oh, that's that's very that's weird. That's not right. Yeah. Ed's watch had also been left behind on the nightstand and he also never left home without this item. Mm. In the bathroom of the home, police discovered a bunch of bank statements that had been pulled out of a box and scattered around the floor between the bathtub and the sink, which that's not a normal thing in any home. <laughs> right. Other than that, however, there really wasn't much out of place and there was no indication of a robbery or a struggle of any kind, which left investigators feeling a little bit perplexed as to what was going on at all. Right. So we can't find these people. We can't find their car. And there's a couple of like weird misplaced items. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much all that they had. That's a weird, I feel like that'd be odd for most people Mm -hmm. and it would raise red flags, but it also, it doesn't give you any real leads. Right. Like, unless you go look for that car. That's the only thing I can think of that they could go do next is, Mm -hmm. well, let's go find their car, you know? You have a good instinct. Well, and it's like, I empathize with investigators in that situation because it's like, I can't actually tell if this is an emergency or not. Right. Like, I I don't know what what call would be the right call to make Mm -hmm. with only this evidence. Yeah. Hmm. You know, so I do not envy being in that position. Right. The investigating officers decided that they would continue to search for the Morins. They decided to split up and drive all over Lewis County, wondering if the Morins had possibly been in a car accident. Maybe they slid into a ditch or they had gotten lost or confused. Mm -hmm. Along with the officers, a whole slew of local volunteers combed through the woods. They drove along back roads and called all of the hospitals in the county. They tried everything they could think of, leaving no stone unturned, but still, Ed and Minnie were nowhere to be found, and there was no sign of the couple, no sign of their car. Oh, man. The following morning, Friday, December 20th, the sheriff's department put out an APB with the state of Washington on the couple and their missing car, hoping that this would help their search. And thankfully, this did end up producing a lead. Oh, good. 
A car matching the description of the Morin's green Chrysler sedan was reported in the northeast corner of the parking lot of the Yardbirds Flea Market, which was a heavily trafficked, super popular shopping center at the time. Hmm. Uh, A documentary I watched for this called it like basically what you would expect a Walmart to be like today. It was always busy. People were there all the time. Yeah, yeah. When Detective Sergeant Glade Austin and other officers arrived at the Yardbirds, they noted that the car had appeared to have been abandoned there. Their Mm. first hunch was that maybe the Morin's vehicle had broken down and that they'd possibly tried to find another ride home. But when Austin cleared the frost from the windows of the vehicle and looked inside, that hunch was replaced with immediate dread. Oh, no. There on the front passenger door and seat of the vehicle was a significant amount of blood. Oh, no. Detective Sergeant Austin pulled at the driver's door handle and discovered that it was unlocked and that the keys were in the ignition. He grabbed the keys and unlocked the trunk, but the trunk was empty. Upon this discovery, Austin called for additional assistance at the scene. Like, okay, Mm. we need to get more eyes on this, figure out what's going on with this car. Yeah. Quickly, Detective Richard Harrington arrived and took note of the blood in the car, along with noting a red blanket draped across the bench seat in the front of the vehicle, along with a men's hat and a single white shoe that appeared to be a woman's shoe, kind of on the floorboard Mm. of the Mm -hmm. car. Under the blanket, there was another large pool of blood. A more thorough sweep of the car uncovered even more blood, spent shotgun shells like the little pellets, damage on the dash that indicated that at least two shots had been fired inside of the vehicle, and cracks on the passenger window as well, likely indicating that the driver and passenger of the vehicle had both suffered from at least one gunshot wound. Oh, geez. So this very quickly escalated from a missing persons investigation into a much more serious investigation. With no bodies and no usable prints in the vehicle that could help locate Ed, Minnie, or any suspects in the case, however, it was not possible to determine whether or not they were alive or dead at this point. So they weren't quite sure, like, is this a crazy, awful assault? Is this a homicide? We have no idea. Right. So that same day, the Morins home and their 120-acre Christmas tree farm began being processed as well. So the investigators were hoping that Maybe there would be some viable prints inside of the home Mm -hmm. that could give them like any direction in the case at all. Yeah. While Austin and Harrington combed over the inside of the house, they made notes about the initial oddities and discovered a few more potentially useful clues. Hmm. One, the blinds had been pulled down, obscuring the inside of the home from outside viewers. According to the Morin's family members, they always drew their blinds first thing in the morning. So this was considered unusual. Mm. The detectives also discovered additional bank statements in a fireplace cleanout outside of the home, like kind of like alongside of the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is super weird. Why would there be bank statements scattered about on the ground outside of the house? Yeah. Hmm. What? So the bank state, sorry, did you have something? Well, I was just thinking how, how, that seems very disconnected to what I would have anticipated. Like, so in my mind, the timeline that I'm putting together in my head, which you might confirm or tell me I'm totally wrong, Hmm. is that something happened the night before. Sure. And, you know, this whole thing. But that would just be like, in my head, just like a random, like, burglary Mm -hmm. turned, turned stick up, essentially. Sure. You know, that kind of a thing. Take them to the store and have them pull money out of the ATM, whatever, and then sure. kill them. Like, that's what I'm anticipating. But that that seems like a weird detail to have a bunch mm-hmm. of bank statements everywhere. I'm like, what? Is the bank holding them up? <laughs> like, yeah, it's weird, like, right? I, mean, I wouldn't put it past any bank, but 
that's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, that's that that's so odd. Anyway, it is very strange. So the bank statements outside got the investigators wheels turning a bit. They hadn't contacted the bank yet. And so they called Ed and Minnie's bank and asked if anyone had spoken with them in the last day or two. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they had. An employee at the bank said that at 10 a.m. on the 19th, Ed had called asking them to prepare a withdrawal of $8,500 in cash, which he would pick up within the hour. Hmm. Ed had told the teller, a lady by the name of Patricia Hole, that he was pulling money out in order to help one of their children to purchase a new car. However, when the family was contacted and asked about Ed and Minnie helping with a car, all of them were dumbfounded. There had not been any conversations about anybody helping anyone with the purchase of a vehicle. So now there was a potential financial motive in the Moran's disappearances. Uh So over the next several days, concerned family members, friends, and members of the community continued tirelessly searching for Ed and Minnie, hoping beyond hope for a Christmas miracle, that they'd be found safe and unharmed, and that there would be some kind of logical explanation Mm -hmm. for this whole ordeal. Mm -hmm. On Christmas Eve morning, another discovery was made. A gentleman in the community made a call to the sheriff's office. He'd been out driving on a logging road when he noticed something strange in the ditch. At first, he believed it was a discarded department store mannequin, but when he looked closer, he was horrified to realize it was not a mannequin, but instead, it was the deceased body of an elderly woman. Oh, no. Yeah, it's never a mannequin. There's so many stories like that where it's like, I feel like our brains try and protect us when we see something like that. Right. You know, there's so many stories where you hear that their initial thought was that it's like a puppet or a mannequin. They could, their brain couldn't process that they were looking at a deceased a human. human. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a like a psychology thing, like our yeah. brain protecting us. So detectives, including Austin, Harrington, and then another by the name of David Neeser, or Nicer, I don't know which one it is, sorry. Mm, sure. uh, they all rushed out to the scene. When they arrived, they discovered the body of a woman. She was likely in her 80s and appeared to have been killed by a gunshot blast. Oh, no. Scattered near the body were several other items that appeared to belong to the victim. Some dentures, a pair of glasses, and a small comb. There was also a trail of blood leading from the body in the ditch and up to the paved road where more blood was discovered in a pool. The road led to a more secluded area, and so Detective Harrington followed the trajectory of the blood trail, Mm -hmm. and that's where he discovered a second body belonging to an elderly man who also appeared to have been killed by a shotgun blast. Oh, man. Due to the way that the clothing was bunched up and worn on both of the victims, detectives were able to deduce that they were probably likely killed elsewhere Mm -hmm. and then dragged to this location where their bodies were discovered. So just kind of based off of the blood pooling, the clothing, all that. They also discovered another single white shoe that appeared to match the other shoe that had been found in the car. Mm. A forensics team was dispatched to the crime scene in order to transport both bodies to the Lewis County morgue. Autopsies were performed immediately, and it was determined that both victims had been shot in the back of the neck and head execution style by a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun. Oh, jeez. Just so brutal. The buckshot recovered from the car, the crime scene, and from the victims all matched, mm-hmm. which began helping investigators to kind of piece together more of this like grisly puzzle that was yeah. unfolding. Yeah. While medical staff and police were pretty well convinced that the bodies belonged to the Morins, they couldn't be formally identified until a next of kin was able to do so. So the couple's adult son, Dennis Hadler, came in and determined that the bodies belonged to his mother and stepfather. So it was Ed and mm. Minnie. 
super sad. That is really sad. So not only was this absolutely devastating and life-changing to Dennis, the Morin's other children, and their extended family who lived in the area, but the entire community and surrounding area was also crushed to learn of such a horrifying bit of news, especially on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Like I'd mentioned, Ed and Minnie were deeply loved and cherished members of their community. And so this revelation was absolutely heartbreaking and deeply troubling to everyone who knew them. Because it's also like, wait a minute, this doesn't happen here. Right. right. I feel like we unfortunately hear so many stories like that as well, Mm -hmm. where where people can't even wrap their minds around something so horrible happening in their own backyard, especially to people that you care about during like a, like a, Holy feels like too extreme of a word, but it's it's sacred in its yeah, way. Yeah. Holidays are sacred in their way where people are like, you can't imagine something awful happening mm-hmm. during this time, you know? Yeah. So it was like a whole emotional mm-hmm. roller coaster that everybody was kind of thrown on. And still, even more than 30 years later, members of the community are still feeling the loss. They're still mind blown at the senselessness of taking two of the kindest lives in such a gruesome manner during the holidays. Mm -hmm. On top of all of that, this type of crime was relatively non-existent in the area. And so like this was just a nightmare time for people all around Lewis County. Wow. I think I read that Lewis County as a whole, at least at this time, had like between 70 and 80,000 residents total in the whole county. Wow. And so it's not a huge metro. So one-eighth of all of those people lived right there. Yeah. Jeez. Mm -hmm. So with the discovery of the bodies and some questions answered, new questions arose. Who would have wanted to do this to the Morins and why? When the fingerprints from inside the Morin's home were processed, it was learned that they belonged to either Ed and Minnie or to members of their family. Mm -hmm. This could obviously indicate that the Morins were simply visited all the time by their family members, but it could also have indicated something much worse. Right. That someone who knew the Morins, someone who loved them very much, could be responsible for their murders. Mm. Unfortunately, a vast majority of homicides are committed by family members, friends, or acquaintances. Somewhere like 75, 80%, like it's a huge percentage are committed not at random. Mm. So in homicide cases, the first suspects almost have to be those closest to the victims, which is awful in cases where like the loved ones are ruled out. Right. Because I like, I totally get why this is part of the investigation process. Like I I do understand it. It has to be be worked out. It does. You You have to rule people out of of the potential of them being there and doing that. Absolutely. But, but at the same traumatic. time, it's like, yeah. it's, yeah, it feels like compounding trauma where it's like, I just lost someone I love with my whole heart in a terrible way. Mm-hmm. And you think I did it? You're know, like, how incredulous that would feel, you yeah. know? So yeah. I really, really empathize with everybody who had to be questioned during this time that loved them, you know? Mm-hmm. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Investigators issued a press release urging the public to come forward if they had any information about the Morins' final hours, about their car, or if they've even just noticed something out of the ordinary, all in hopes of 
figuring this thing out and bringing justice to Ed and Minnie. Mm -hmm. This led to several witnesses coming forward, each claiming that they had seen something strange. There were handfuls of eyewitnesses who claimed to have seen the Morins in their vehicle with at least one, or in some cases, two additional passengers on the morning of December 19th. Hmm. Yeah, very strange. Others came forward claiming to have seen someone at Yardbirds early on the afternoon of the 19th who appeared to have been ditching the vehicle. Multiple eyewitnesses reported seeing this, and with the help of an admittedly vague description of the man, police were able to put together a composite sketch that they quickly released to the media. Mm -hmm. So according to the witnesses, they had seen a white man of average build with dark hair and facial hair. He'd been wearing a military-style camo jacket and was carrying an object that was roughly two and a half to three feet long that had been wrapped in a sheet, so possibly a gun of some kind. Mm -hmm. Once the sketch and a description of the man hit the news, this led more people to come forward with tips regarding the case. But this time, people were coming forward believing that they knew who it was who was mm. seen ditching the car. Dennis Hadler's son, Mike. Ed and Minnie's grandson. Oh. Yeah. Grandson. That would be oh. wild. So Mike had a bit of a reputation and had had a little bit of conflict with police over the years. He'd mostly been involved in petty crime, including stealing money from his father's safe. Mm -hmm. Mike was quickly brought in for questioning, and he immediately denied having any involvement in the horrendous crimes. He did his best to answer all the questions that police had, and he offered up some more potentially useful information. Early in the morning on the 19th, while it was still dark, so somewhere around 5.30 a.m., mm -hmm. Mike and Dennis had driven past Ed and Minnie's home. They noticed that the lights were on inside of the house, which was super out of the ordinary because the Morins never woke up that early. Mm. Later on, Dennis would confirm Mike's story, but still, investigators wanted to be absolutely certain that Mike had nothing to do with the murders, right. and so they asked him to complete a polygraph exam, which mm. we have so many feelings about we polygraphs. Do. Yes. <laughs> Inadmissible in court, easy to get a false mm -hmm. result, all that kind of stuff. Right, but right. Mike readily agreed, stating that since he had nothing to hide, there was no reason for him to not cooperate. Sure. He passed the exam with flying colors and was quickly ruled out as a suspect. According to Mike, there was no Christmas for anyone in the family that year. Mm. Everyone in the family was overwhelmed with grief and opted not to gather together to celebrate the holiday when Christmas morning rolled around. Mm -hmm. Soon after, more family members went in for questioning and polygraphs one by one until everyone related to the Morins had been eliminated as a suspect. Yeah. So it was not a family member. <sighs> wow. That'd be so super hard. That would be really hard. I would hate that. And like every year having to- You relive it. Relive it, mm -hmm. exactly. With no usable evidence in the murders at this point, police continued following up on each of the hundreds of leads provided by the public. Mm -hmm. They questioned workers on the tree farm, friends of the Morins, and other members of the community, but still, they were no closer to figuring out who killed Ed and Minnie. And this continued for years. Really? With no additional leads, the case remained open and grew colder and colder each year. But even still, Minnie's son Dennis never gave up hope that the killer would be found. Hmm. He would say in a statement, quote, At my mother's funeral, I put my hand on her casket and I said, I won't ever give up as long as I live, end quote. Oh, that's really sweet. Sweet, Dennis. Hmm. In 1992, nearly seven years after the crimes had taken place, the case was given a second wind. At this time, investigators figured it would be helpful to bring in some fresh eyes to the case, so they contacted officers with a different law enforcement office. Hmm. 
together, everybody just kind of went through the hundreds, if not thousands of old leads, hoping to find something that would lead them closer to the killer. Yeah. Finally, they came across an old tip that caught their attention. The tip recommended that detectives should contact a woman by the name of Robin Reif. Robin was the estranged wife of Rick Reif, which that is a tongue twister. That is a tongue twister. <laughs> I'm proud of myself for getting that one out in one, in one try. <laughs> so Rick and his brother, John Gregory, or Greg, were no strangers to law enforcement in Lewis County. The brothers shared a super close bond, and they had a reputation for kind of being a rough and tumble pair, Rick especially. Sure. It was also noted that the two regularly made comments about being short on money, and because of this, they often resorted to other means of income. They allegedly were both involved in selling drugs and would take other less savory jobs that often involved violence as means of enforcement. Mm. So that was kind of their rep. Yeah. Not great. When the investigators dug deeper, they discovered that the Rife brothers both relocated to Alaska in 1987, two years after the Morin murders, and that since that time, neither of them had had any contact with anyone in Lewis County. Hmm. This actually seemed like a potentially promising lead, and so detectives in Lewis County located Robin Rife. She was serving time at a prison in Arizona on drug-related charges, and they were able to arrange a phone conversation with her shortly after that. Detective Nicer called and introduced himself, telling Robin that he was investigating a double murder. She stopped him and asked, you mean the two old people? Mm. So she knew right away. Wow. He told her, yes, the double murder that happened outside of Chehalis, Washington during Christmas in 1985. What she told Detective Nicer made his hair stand on end. In the early morning hours of December 19th, 1985, Robin had dropped Rick and Greg off about a mile away from the Morins' home. Like in the dark, in the middle of nowhere. That's weird. Okay. Later that morning, Greg called Robin asking her to come pick them up. She arrived at the location where Greg said to meet, and there she saw at least one body in the Morin's green car. She also remembered Ricky furiously yelling at Greg to get Robin out of there. And so she left. She just left him there. Mm -hmm. So, Hoping that this would be the missing piece that would finally break the case open, detectives presented this information to the prosecuting attorney at the time. But frustratingly, the attorney opted not to regard Robin Reif's statement as evidence, citing her criminal record as reason enough to discount and dismiss her claims. Mm. So he decided not to pursue charges against the Reif brothers for that reason. That seems silly. (sighs) At least to not, like, consider it and, like, I don't know, like, run that through due process. But right. Whatever. That, that made me sad when I was reading yeah. that. I'm like, really? Because right. she has a drug related criminal charge. We right. now can't take anything she says seriously. That's well, so silly. Well, and how often do we take the testimony of people who are doing the same crime together, have one of them be a witness right. to put the other one away right. and give them a, a plea deal of some sort? Like, right. And we have strong opinions about that too. But, but like, it, that's not consistent. I don't like that. I know. I hate the inconsistency that happens like that sometimes. It makes me sad. Yeah. So three years later in 1995, the case was still stagnant. Jeez. Detective Nicer had kept in contact with Robin over the past three years and would call to check in on her about every six months or so. Hmm. So he made a call to Robin. And when a man answered the phone, Nicer was informed by the man who was Robin's father that she had unfortunately passed away in November the year before. So now the only potential witness in the Morin case had passed away, leaving the case as cold as ever. And the two most likely suspects are just out and about living their lives seemingly 
evading like long overdue justice. Right. 14 more years would pass by. What? And there were still no answers, no charges. So we're coming up to like 2009. Yeah. Okay. So after Nicer's retirement in 2009, the Morin case was handed over to Detective Bruce Kimsey. Hmm. Kimsey was young at the time of the Morin murders, but he'd been there every year as Christmas approached, and he'd witnessed the once merry and bright season become somber and sad as the locals were reminded of the terrible unsolved murder of their mm-hmm. friends. And so Kimsey understood the importance of this case from the minute he was given authority over wow. it. This was one that he described as being one of the first to emotionally affect him. Wow. Yeah. So pretty quickly into his time overseeing the case, Kimsey decided that if he couldn't bring charges on the Rife brothers with the evidence collected up until that point, that maybe he could make contact with family and friends of the brothers who might remember something about Christmas all the way back in 1985. Mm-hmm. And maybe that would, you know, produce something sure. that could lead to charges. Wow. During this time, Kimsey was able to get in touch with a sister of Robin's. So this sister was able to recall that Rick, Robin, and Robin's children, who were usually pretty unkempt, they would like wear old clothes mm-hmm. that were in like kind of tattered condition. So they showed up to her home wearing brand new clothes that year. Robin was wearing really nice makeup and nice clothes as well. Mm. And Rick and Robin were also able to bring gifts for everyone, which was something that was not the norm for them. Like they were mm. not usually able to bring gifts. Right. They they just did not have a lot of money. Times are hard. And so it was strange that everybody showed up dressed to the nines with gifts. Right. So you might be wondering what kind of gifts they showed up with. According to Robin's sister, Rick handed her husband a $300 bag of cocaine and said, Merry Christmas. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is a lot of money. She also recalled that Rick it's asked her cocaine. husband. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess I or Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. $300 of cocaine sounds like a lot of cocaine. In 80s cocaine? Probably. Yeah. Who knows? Wow. So she also recalled that Rick had asked her husband whether or not shotgun shells could be traced. Hmm. But he became flustered and he halted that conversation before it got anywhere. Yeah. Because the husband was like, wait, why would you need to know that? You know? (laughs) Yeah. That same spring, so 1986, Robin was able to take the kids on vacation to Disneyland, which was something that had never been a possibility for the family up until that year, considering like all of this. Yeah. Yeah. On top of the fact that they were already living in poverty, Rick hadn't been working for the months leading up to Christmas of 1985. So nobody Mm. knew for sure where Rick had gotten the money. Yeah. So it was kind of in everybody's minds that maybe Rick did have something to do with the Morin's murders. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of unclear if like the amount of money that the Morin's withdrew or any of that was public knowledge or not. Right. I wasn't. Yeah. So regardless, everybody's kind of like that was a strange time now that you mention it, you know. Along with Robin's family, Detective Kimsey was also able to get in contact with a friend of the Rife brothers, a fellow by the name of Les George. Robin had mentioned George as someone that Rick and Greg had been hanging out with in like the months leading up to the murders. Mm -hmm. George recalled driving past the Morins' house with the Rife brothers one night, and he casually said something like, hey, if you guys need money, I'm pretty sure the Morins have a whole lot of it. Like, not really thinking anything of it, just kind of making a casual remark. Yeah. Like, in the middle of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. He also said that a week before the murders, he'd asked Rick if he could get some help with something. George had a shotgun that he needed to be sawed off. 
Mm. He was a trucker and wanted to be able to bring a gun along with him for like protection while he traveled. But the barrel of his shotgun was too long to fit like safely behind the seat. Mm -hmm. Rick agreed to help, but strangely, he was basically refusing to give George his shotgun back for several months that followed him like getting possession of it. Mm, Which is odd. suspicious, yeah. George felt super weird about the whole thing. Like he had like a gut feeling that the Rife brothers may have used his gun to commit a double murder. Right. Yikes. Oh boy. Big yikes. He had a terrible feeling anytime that he was around the gun once he did get it back. So he brought it to his parents' home where they stored it for him for a short time. Mm Mm-hmm. But George's father also had a weird feeling about the gun. And so he took the gun and threw it into the nearby Mayfield Lake. Oh. He ditched the gun. That is not probably the wisest way to to get rid of a gun. Yeah. Okay. I do I do understand that impulse to be sure. like, just get it away from me. If it sure. was involved, I personally would probably go the route of calling police. Right. And being like, hey, you might want to just check this. <laughs> This but is also, weird. like, <laughs> yeah. that would be a weird kind of pressure because if he had nothing to do with the murder, but his gun was used, right? How difficult would it be to prove that? Could he go down for the crime? Right, right. And so I, I can get that. That's a complicated thing. Yeah, that, I understand that too. Mm-hmm. Just a wild situation. Yeah. So George had been afraid for his own life and for the lives of his loved ones, and so he kept all of this information a secret until Kimsey called him more than twenty years later. Hmm. There was another witness who came forward, an anonymous woman who claimed to have been dating Greg at the time of the murders. She said that after a nasty fight, George said to her that they'd killed before and that they would do it again. So all of this is circumstantial, but at the same time, it does not make the Rifes look awesome. It does not. So finally, in 2011, Kimsey was able to gather all of this new evidence. He then presented the case to the county prosecutor. This time, with handfuls of pretty damning testimony, a clear financial motive, and a heap of other circumstantial evidence, the prosecutor agreed that there was officially enough evidence to bring charges against the Rife brothers. Hmm. On July 8, 2012, the warrants for the arrests of John, Gregory, and Richard Rife came through. Wildly enough, upon the signing of the warrant papers, it was learned that literally a week before, Greg Rife had passed away. Oh. A week earlier. Oh. Mm-hmm. Dang. That's that's sad. But Rick was still alive and hmm. kicking. Yeah. And so Detective Kimsey, a private investigator named Chris Peterson, and the assistant district attorney William Halstead all flew to Alaska. They headed straight to Rick Rife's property in King Salmon, Alaska, and surrounded the place. Hmm. The Alaska State Police that had accompanied the Lewis County detectives knocked at the front door of Rick's home, but there was no response. They creaked open the front door and announced who they were, but still, they were met with silence. After a few tense minutes, a man's voice from some unseen place within the home demanded to know who was in his house. They told him who they were and asked if they could speak with him. He begrudgingly agreed. When they told him why they were there, Rick immediately denied any involvement in the murders and quickly became non-compliant. They informed him that he was under arrest for two counts of first-degree robbery and two counts of first-degree murder and was initially jailed in Anchorage, Alaska. He was then brought to the Lewis County Jail shortly thereafter, where he awaited trial. Wow. So at this point, they did have a lot of evidence coming from a pretty wide variety of witnesses, but all of it was still circumstantial at best. Yeah. They had testimony and some other circumstantial evidence, but they didn't have a confession 
They didn't have fingerprints placing the rifles at any of the crime scenes. They didn't have a living eyewitness or even the weapon used to commit the murders. So they needed something solid or somebody to come forward to give them something more solid to work with. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, someone did. Okay. A friend of Ed and Minnie, a guy by the name of Jason Shriver, came forward and informed police that he'd seen the Morins in their vehicle on the day that they were murdered. He was only 17 years old at the time of the murders. Jason said that he'd been riding in the car with his mother on the way to get his wisdom teeth removed. He and his family were very close with the Morins, and so he obviously noticed them as they drove by in their vehicle. He waved at them, but they didn't wave back. Hmm. Stranger still, he noted that Ed was driving and Minnie was sitting in the back seat directly behind him. There were also two male passengers in the car, one in the front seat next to Ed and one in the back next to Minnie. Hmm. Not only that, but he recognized the passengers. Rick Reif was in the front seat and Greg Reif was in the back seat. Wow. Later that same day, Jason was in town where he was suddenly approached and cornered by the Reifs, who proceeded to threaten to kill him, his brothers, and his entire family if he ever came forward with what he saw. Oh, no. To emphasize their point, the Reifs would pass by Jason's home and his school, and they would drive by super slowly until he would notice them. Yeah. And they would, you know, stare at him to intimidate him. Right, right. In an interview with Oxygen, Jason would go on to express serious pain and regret for the Morin and Hadler families for not coming forward sooner. But Mm. he'd been threatened and terrified by these two men who had spent decades believing, rightfully so, that these guys had already killed before. Right. You know? So it's really sad. He feels like he betrayed, he said, I feel like I betrayed the Morins by staying silent. Yeah. Well, really sad. He was a child when that happened. Literally. 17 is pretty close to an adult, but like. Even Still a he, kid. Even if he would have been 20, had been like, he's done. He's a young he, kid yeah. who's scared. <laughs> yeah. Like, of course he didn't come forward. Right. So I, I mean, I, I guess once again, I just don't blame him right. for not doing it, but he would go on to help the case in a huge way. Jason Shriver was the prosecution's star witness at the November, 2013 trial of Rick Reif. Wow. The Lewis County courthouse room was packed to the brim with friends and family of the Morins. It was like standing room only. Mm -hmm. It was packed. That makes sense. Everybody was hoping to witness justice being served almost 28 years after their deaths. Wow. Rick Reif had been charged with two counts of first-degree kidnapping, two counts of first-degree robbery, and two counts of first-degree murder, but would maintain his innocence throughout the trial. The prosecution presented their best idea of how the murders had unfolded based on the available evidence. They believe that in the early morning hours of December 19th, Rick and Greg Reif entered the Morins' home. They believe that the Reifs had assumed that the Morins had money in their home and that they could simply break in, steal the money, and sneak away. Mm -hmm. But when they discovered that there was no money in the home, they likely forced Ed to call the bank at gunpoint in order to make a withdrawal. Yeah. They then forced the couple into their own car, had Ed drive to the bank and get the money, and then they drove out into the forest shooting Ed and Minnie in the car before dragging them off into the secluded woods surrounding the road. They then ditched the vehicle in the Yardbirds parking lot. Mm. All of that makes logical sense. Yeah. After six weeks of testimony coming from both sides, the jury had reached a verdict. They found Rick Reif guilty on all counts. Wow. He was promptly sentenced to 1,234 months or 103 years in prison and was ordered to pay $26,594 in restitution to the family. As the sentence was being read before the court, family members, friends, prosecutors, and detectives who had worked the case 
all cried as they finally got to experience some level of closure in the case. Yeah. Rife appealed his sentencing, but the appeal was declined. Hmm. Denied. Yeah, yeah. During the appeals process in October of 2014, another very different victim of Rick Rife had her day in court as well. So sadly, content warning, I'm going to briefly mention domestic abuse, child abuse, and childhood sexual assault. I won't go into detail as always, but if that's something that's sensitive to you, please feel free to skip forward about 30 seconds or so. So a 38-year-old anonymous woman came forward claiming that while Rick was in a relationship with her mother, that he had been violent towards her and her mother. Mm. She claimed that Rick had begun sexually assaulting her at the age of 10, and that though her mother knew about the abuse, that it did continue through her childhood. Oh, that's so sad. With two of the surviving children of Ed and Minnie in attendance, their daughter and son Dennis— Oh, sorry, daughter Hazel and son Dennis, the woman bravely told her story to the court, thankful to finally be able to confront the man who had harmed her as a child. He received an additional six years in prison for the child abuse. Yeah. To this day, Rick Reif maintains his innocence. He believes that at no point was he granted a fair trial due to the community response to the murders and that they were just looking to put someone away Mm. for the crimes. But he is still in prison at the Lewis County Jail from everything I could find. Wow. Wow. So Minnie Morin is buried in Toledo, Lewis County, Washington, alongside her beloved husband, Ed, and the two are still very loved and well-remembered across Lewis County today. And that is what I have for you. Wow. Oh, that's such a sad story. Yeah. I'm glad it has closure, and it sounds like Mm -hmm. a lot of people feel like justice has mostly been served. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, there's only so much when one of the people who was involved is already gone and dead, but... Mm -hmm. <sighs> that's like a really hard, sad story to listen to and yeah. it affected the whole community. Yeah. And but, still does like it's yeah. been 30 years and it's yeah. still affect almost 30 years, I guess. Yeah. Wait, more than 30 years, almost 40 years. Yeah. Almost 40 years. Wow. That's wild. Well, and one thing that was really frustrating, I didn't write it down. I believe at sentencing, there was an opportunity for Rick to address the court and address the family and all that kind of stuff. And they add, like gave him an opportunity to express remorse, offer an apology. Mm-hmm. And his, he declined and had sure. his attorney say that he will not, he has no remorse because he didn't do it. So mm. he maintains that he didn't do it, but. Well, so much for that, considering that. All every, the evidence. All the evidence and the witnesses. Yeah. Yeah. And he got convicted, buddy. Oof. Wow. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform and leave the best review you could possibly leave. That'd be a great Mm. Christmas gift to this podcast. (laughs) Five stars or the equivalent and uh, kind words of a review. Also, if you want to stay connected with us, uh, you can do so over on social medias. We're on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy. And on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And even more directly, you can join us over on Patreon. My love, tell everybody a little bit about Patreon. Yes. So you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozy pod. And for $5 a month, you can support our show. Supporters on Patreon also get access to all of our content ad-free, along with two monthly episodes that are exclusive to Patreon. Mm-hmm. And we're also doing a little additional monthly fiction mm-hmm. story that we share on there, too. First which Friday is of the month. First Friday of the month. 
We love it. Super fun. So please join us over there. Yes. And as a quick reminder, please make sure that you're sending in your personal stories, your commentary on uh, past episodes so that we can have a really great episode 100, including all of you. That'd be so fun and so great for us. Yes. With that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.